I'm very grateful for this ministry, and I, I remain ever hopeful about what the Lord uh, can and will do, uh, not only in your individual lives, but in the church, more broadly speaking. Um, so listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into our, our text for tonight, and I want to invite you to uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. The Gospel of Luke chapter 4, and we are going to read verses 14 through 22. The Gospel of Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 22. This is God's Word. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. If you would please pray with me. Father, we know that we have every reason to hope when we come to sit under your word preached. We have every reason to hope that you will meet us in the power of your grace. We have every reason to hope that you can change us. We have every reason to hope that our neighbors can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus and that you will meet them in all of the particularities of their struggles and their pains and their sufferings. We have reason to hope, Lord, because it's by your word that you spun the worlds into existence. It's by your word that you redeem sinners and it is by your word that you will make all things new. So Lord, we pray that tonight you would help us to not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. Help us to humble ourselves under your word so that we may be changed and so that we may be mobilized for love and good deeds. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've taken a, a history class during your, your time here in college, uh, maybe you've taken an American history class, or maybe you haven't in college up to this point, but you remember back when you took history class in high school, and you, you may remember back to the Revolutionary War the Revolutionary War, when the American patriots fought long and hard to be free from British rule. If you remember back to the, the Revolutionary period, what you know about those patriots is that they wanted just treatment. 
They wanted relief from the tyranny of England. They knew that England was not doing them right. And so they wanted to be free. And they were willing to fight for it. They were willing to fight for their freedom. They were willing to fight for justice. But these colonists were a walking contradiction because these same people who fought for their own personal freedom endorsed slavery for their black neighbors. The very people who actively pursued justice for themselves were the ones who withheld the justice that was due to their neighbors. And it's near impossible for us to actually imagine the catastrophic damage that this has done to the Christian faith in America. The way that this has uh, misformed us or, or led us into a, a malformation. But here's the deal. It's easy to look back and critique those people of that age for their inconsistencies and to miss our own inconsistencies on this very point. As Christians, we regularly and rightly acknowledge that God has set us free. We sing about it. We rejoice in it. We, we talk about it in our small groups. God has set us free. We've been set free from bondage to sin and the curse of the law. We've been set free by Jesus Christ. He has set us free from shame. He has set us free from guilt and fear that shackles and stunts human thriving. And we, we fight to live in this freedom and to embody this life of freedom for ourselves. We go to therapists to try and get some help for living into that freedom. You sit down with your RUF campus minister. You talk to your pastor of your local church because you long to live in that freedom and you're willing to fight for that freedom. But the question is, have we been as vigilant when it comes to the holistic freedom of our neighbors? Have we been as willing to fight for the freedom of our neighbors? Or are we so focused on our personal freedoms that we've passively allowed the bondage of injustice for our neighbors? Do we find ourselves pursuing just and equitable arrangements for ourselves while we withdraw from the work of seeing these same arrangements brought to reality for others? These are hard questions that we have to ask ourselves. Because if you're paying attention to what's going on in our country right now, you know that our neighbors are crying out for justice, particularly our black neighbors. And many people are wondering, what does God have to say about all this? What does God have to say about all the things that are going on right now? And we need to make sure that we have a faithful answer from the scriptures. One of the greatest wounds you could ever inflict on a person is to lead them to believe that God has nothing to say about their suffering, nothing to say about the injustices that are perpetuated against them, nothing to say about how they may get free and live a life of flourishing. It's one of the greatest wounds that we can give to someone, leading them to believe that God has nothing to say to them. But we know from the scriptures that God has spoken to us in a son. God has spoken to us in his son. And tonight, I want us to turn 
to take a good long look at the sun. And I want to drive one point tonight. I just got one point. And it's this. If you're the note, note-taking kind of person, here's my one point for tonight. The spirituality of Jesus must become the spirituality of the church. The spirituality of Jesus must become the spirituality of the church. Not just individually, but corporately. So let's unpack this. We're going to get into the text. I want you to keep your Bible open. I want you to keep your Bible near you. This is not uh, a speech. This is a sermon. I'm going to preach from God's word. And I want you to keep in mind that everything that God has to say to us is for our life and godliness and for our knowledge of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's for our good, even if it feels unfamiliar, even if it feels new to us, we need to humble ourselves under the word of God so that we may walk in the newness of life, so that we may be his disciples. We don't get to set the agenda for the word. The word sets the agenda for the disciple. So let's, let's begin to unpack this. If you look at verses 14 through 15, you notice that the text tells us that there was a report that went out about Jesus throughout the region. I mean, the, the regional grapevine was carrying news all around the region about Jesus. And he was getting people's attention because, because of his teaching in the local synagogues. And the emphasis that you see in the text is on his teaching. But I want you to note Luke's choice of emphasis for the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry. This is really important. Remember where we're at. We're in Luke chapter four. And this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And this is the way that Luke wants to introduce Jesus to us. If you're trying to think about how to understand the Gospels, think of the Gospels. Each of the four Gospels are like four different renditions of the same song. You might have the jazz version. You might have a, a reggae version or a pop version. You, you might have a, a rock version of the same song but it's still the same song, the same melody. This is Luke's version of Jesus, and he is trying to communicate the life and ministry, the person and work of Jesus for his audience. And Luke is writing to a marginalized audience. So I want you to, to recognize and pay attention to the way that Luke frames up Jesus. Remember, he's trying to answer the question early on in his gospel, who is Jesus? So check it out how he portrays Jesus. Jesus arrives in the synagogue. And when he arrives, remember the word had gotten out about Jesus. It's like a famous teacher had, had come to the synagogue. And so Jesus is invited to share a word from Torah, the Old Testament scriptures. And they give him the Isaiah scroll. And Jesus, if you look at the text, he doesn't get to choose the scroll but he gets to choose where in the Isaiah scroll he wants to go to. And what he does is he picks up that Isaiah scroll and he picks his text himself. Now, he could have chosen anything in Isaiah to introduce himself. Think about it. One of the most famous passages that we use to talk about Jesus is Isaiah 53. He was bruised for our transgressions. I mean, Jesus could have introduced himself 
with Isaiah 53. As the, the suffering servant, the, the savior who was going to die for the sins of his people. But he chooses a different text. He chooses a different text. Now, think about this. When people introduce me, like Stu introduced me today, uh, people often introduce me. Yeah, this is Russ Whitfield. He's pastor of Grace Mosaic. He's the director of cross-cultural advancement for RUF. They pull out the, the parts of my life and my identity that are most relevant for you to understand who I am. As Stu introduced me, he pulled out the parts that are most relevant for you to get a sense of who I am. Well, this is what Jesus is doing by his choice of the Isaiah text that he picks. If, if you look at what he does, he, he picks a text from Isaiah chapter 61. And essentially what, what Luke is showing us is that Jesus is introducing him, himself this way. Jesus is saying by picking Isaiah 61, Isaiah introduced me as the spirit-filled, freedom-fighting, bondage-breaking savior of the world. That's how Isaiah introduces me. He pulls out his introduction from Isaiah 61. And if you move down to verse 18, Jesus ascribes this passage to himself. It starts with a mention of his spirituality. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, he's giving you a sense of what this, the Spirit of God is empowering him to do, has empowered him to do, who, how, how the Spirit has empowered him to become the minister that he is, the Savior that he is. So we have to look at the question, what is the impact of his spirituality? How does Jesus' spirituality impact our spirituality. Because remember, if, if this sounds too fancy pants for you, let's just break it down to something very simple. From the time you were little, if you were raised in the church, or from the time you came into RUF, you have heard the idea that God's main goal in the life of the Christian is to make us like Jesus. It's Christ-likeness. God wants to refashion us into the moral and ethical beauty of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the paradigm. He is the archetype. And, and the Spirit is forming and fashioning our lives so that we will look more like Him, so that we will speak more like Him, so that our, our work in the world will look more like His, so that the way we serve will look like the way He serves, so that the way we encourage others will, will look like the way He encouraged his friends, so that the way that Jesus walked in faithfulness to the Father will do the same thing. That's the goal. And that's what the Spirit has empowered him to live the life that God always designed for human beings. So if we're to understand true spirituality for ourselves, we need to look at what the Spirit empowered Jesus to do. And, it, and it's given to us in four phrases. So let's walk through them. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees despised the poor. The ancient philosophers neglected the poor. But Jesus brings the poor good news. R remember, he sets this up by talking about the ministry of the Spirit in him and through him. And his concern and his work is directed toward the vulnerable, the marginalized, those who are in dire straits. And this informs our understanding of Christian spirituality. 
Jesus connects the ministry of the spirit to preaching good news to the poor. In other words, he connects it to justice. And justice is giving people their due as royal image bearers of the triune God. It's giving people their due as God's royal image bearers. That's justice. But look at the next phrase. What has the spirit of the Lord anointed Jesus to do? To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. And this is a phrase originally applied to those who were in captivity in Babylon. If you remember when Israel sinned, they went into exile. And Babylon was one of the places where they went into exile. And they were under the power of foreign nations. And they were enduring forced labor under this foreign kingdom. And all of their gifts, all of their talents, all of their intelligence was controlled by a foreign ruler. They were far from home. They were homesick. They were miserable. But Jesus announces here that the Spirit is upon him to preach the message of liberation to the captive. All those who experience that sense of alienation, that homesickness, all those whose talents and gifts and intellectual capacities have been plundered by the fall. Next phrase, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The word used for oppressed, trauo, means broken to pieces. He's talking about the downtrodden, the weak, the vulnerable, the broken, those who have been abused and crushed, those held in the strong grip of oppression due to evil circumstances. Remember, I want you to remember the context of Jesus preaching. We're in Nazareth of Galilee, and many peasants lived there under the oppression of Rome. Rome was brutal in its treatment of its of subjugated nations. And Jesus is proclaiming, my ministry is tailored to your needs. I came with you in mind. I came with you on my heart. You are central to my agenda, dear oppressed person. And then the final phrase, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now listen, we're going somewhere with all this. We're going somewhere, so keep tracking with me. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now this was an allusion to the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament. And what that meant was on the 50th year, when the trumpet was blown, throughout the whole land, a proclamation was made of liberty to Hebrew slaves. The remission of debts, debts were, were wiped out and there was a restoration of possessions to their original families. Think about that. If your family, yearly, 20 years ago, got into debt and wound up losing the farm. In the Jubilee year, that farm was returned to you. The debt was paid. All that was lost to you was restored to you. Now, what is the Spirit of God doing in the life of Jesus? He's empowering 
a word and deed ministry to the vulnerable and marginalized with social impact. I want you to think about the scope of his spirituality here. The spirituality of Jesus cannot be reduced to personal piety. Like when you, when you just, you know, all, all spirituality is, is when you go in your room and you read your Bible by yourself and you maybe sing some RUF hymns and, and maybe, you know, you, you, you say you, you fast every once in a while, you know, like it's your personal piety, your, your personal warmth of heart for God. Now, all those things are important. And we, every one of us in RUF wants you to cultivate that kind of life before God. Spirituality is not less than that, but it's more than that. It, it, the spirituality of Jesus is not reduced to personal piety, but also the spirituality of Jesus is not mere social reform. It's not reduced to activism. It's, it's both and. Healthy Christian spirituality doesn't spiritualize everything. That was an ancient heresy called Gnosticism. But his ministry is all-encompassing. Every single sphere of life, every dynamic of human life is subsumed under the interest of Jesus. He cares about it all. He cares about you, not just your brain. You know, a lot of times the way we engage theology and doctrine, it's, it's, all we do is become smarter sinners. We don't become more like Jesus because a lot of times we just weaponize our theology to argue with people and beat people up. Because I, I invited John Calvin into my heart. You know what I'm saying? Like a lot of times we reduce spirituality to the acquisition of theology. Just knowing more theology, knowing more doctrine, having the Westminster Shorter Catechism memorized. Oh, oh, but spirituality is more than that. It's spiritual. It, it's, it's both immaterial and material. It involves your body and your mind, your heart. Because here's the thing. Do you think that Jesus cares about people in spiritual bondage to the neglect of sex trafficked little girls in this world? Do you think that that's what Jesus is like? Do you think that Jesus came to die so that his people can remain passive about a black man dying with a knee on his neck at the hands of law enforcement? Do you think that's what Jesus came to do? Does Jesus only care about us one day floating off to heaven? Do you think that, that all Jesus cares about is getting you saved? Jesus cares about it all. And that's why the end of his story is all things new. And his church is to be a foretaste, an anticipation of that all things new project. We're a part of it. He's enlisted us. He has, he's trying to get us off the bench and onto the field. He wants us to be spiritual like him. The Jesus of Luke 4 is, is not okay with the devaluing and the, 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 the stealing of dignity from human beings that are around us. Whether that's in the Old Testament, that was the, 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 the widow, the foreign foreigner, the orphan, and the sojourner. 
but that continues that concern for people on the margins can, continues today and we have to ask ourselves who are those people in our society today who are those people on our campuses today those are the people that jesus would have us be a blessing to those are the people that jesus would have us pursue the jesus of luke 4 cares about all of you and all of your neighbor. This, this is all relevant to our cultural moment because the people that Luke is writing to at the time that they were hearing this, they were under the oppression of Rome. They were a persecuted minority. But the thing is, we need to get over our disconnect because I know we're in America, the land of the free, the home of the brave. What do I need this for? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons why we need to hear this message. First, because this passage dictates the terms of our spirituality and our ministry as the church. This is an issue of discipleship. The church continues the ministry of Jesus. If you remember, the, the, the same Luke who wrote this gospel, he wrote it as a part one and a part two. And part two was the book of Acts. And at the very beginning of the book of Acts, the, the, the guy that Dr. Luke is writing to, a, a guy named Theophilus. So you know, if any of y'all are looking for future children names, Theophilus has got it going on, you know. But he's writing to a friend named Theophilus. And he says to this man in, in the beginning of Acts, you know, in my first writing that I wrote to you, uh, I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the implication is that in the book of Acts, he's going to show us all that Jesus continues to do and teach through his church. There is an intimate union between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of his church. Jesus has put the baton in the hand of the church, and we are to continue to run the race that he set out running. The scope of the Spirit's work in the lives of his people and the lives of his church is governed by the scope of his work in the life of Jesus. He's taken it more broadly. Second, second reason why this matters to us as American Christians who by and large, many of us are living in pretty good circumstances. I have a house. I know where my next meal is coming from. I got you know, gainful employment. I got relatively uh, sane kids um, and a wife who puts up with me, so much of my life is good. And it's tempting to feel like, ah, this passage really misses me, but we need this text. And the second reason why we need it is because Christians have to think globally and care about the world. We, we need to think bigger and get the scope of our concern to broaden and to get wider because the arena of redemption is the entire created order. And this is the arena of our participation in God's work. God has a big agenda and he, he has enlisted us to participate in that big agenda. So we need to get take our cues from a text like this, where Jesus kind of sets it out. He gives you the essence of, of who he is and what he's about by choosing Isaiah 61. Third, the fact of the matter is that Americans are in bondage to many things, and we just don't realize it. We're in bondage to approval. We need people to like us. 
It's not just a nice thing for many of us. Our stomach is in knots a lot of the time because we're unsure of whether or not we're going to get the approval of our friends. We're in bondage to control. Sometimes we freak out when circumstances are outside of our control or when things go uh, opposite of our plan. And I'm like, ah! because control has become essential, at least the illusion of having control. We're in bondage to reputation and what other people think of us. We're in bondage to success or some Americanized version of success. Who am I if I'm not producing? Who am I if I'm not achieving? Who am I if I'm not being awesome somewhere all the time? We're in bondage to security. I mean, we got security systems in our homes and on our cars and you know, we got all kinds of life insurance and we, we, we have all these things put in place to secure our lives, but, and we feel extra vulnerable. Have you ever left the house and forgotten your phone and you're like, oh my God, I'm melting, right? That, because something, you feel like you're going to be at a loss or what, what if something happens and I'm going to be out the dry? I remember when I was growing up, we, this is crazy to think of, but like, we didn't even have cell phones. We didn't have email. We life was good back then. I mean, I remember my first cell phone was one of the Motorola things, and it was I, it was like this. It was like, hello, hello, yeah, yeah. All right, man, I got to get off the phone. My minutes are running out. My mom's gonna kill me. I remember those days. But now, if I if I go out without my phone, I I feel the <gasps> because I need security. We're in bondage. We're in bondage to recognition being looked. Being looked over is the, is the greatest slight. We're, we got addictions of various sorts. We, we self-medicate. There are all kinds of reasons why this message of Jesus is particularly important for us here in American culture. But there's another layer, right? Our black and brown neighbors experience an additional layer of bondage because they are criminalized marginalized and robbed of their God-given royal dignity on so many occasions. I can tell you personal stories that would make you say, what? But it's Russ. But still, it's an extra experience that people who look like me often carry because of the curse, because of the curse. But here's the thing. Jesus has something to say to all of us in the gospel of the kingdom. Take another look at the text and consider how Jesus fulfills this passage and good news pours out for us. The good news for the poor is that the son of God, Jesus Christ, became poor like us in order to make us rich. We went from rags to riches because Jesus went from riches to rags. Christ identifies with the spiritually and materially poor in our vulnerability so that the poor could identify with him in his venerability, in his great dignity and worth and nobility. Think about it. Jesus was a member of a marginalized group. He came to identify to the fullest. He was a poor Jew. The text says that he didn't even have a place to lay his head. Jesus died the, the most shameful, ignoble death, all to identify with us so that people 
who didn't have a place to lay their head. People who are sleeping on the grates on the streets to try and get warm could see in him a savior with whom they could identify. That's how much God cares about the people we so quickly overlook. And that's why the gospel is good news for the poor. Because Jesus has shown us that nobody is beyond the reach of his grace. No one is beyond the pale for him, no matter how down and out they are, no matter how low they may feel, no matter how much they're scraping the bottom of the barrel, Jesus cares because he's a great high priest. That's a beautiful truth. That's good news. Because here's the thing, even if you're listening today and you got into college by a hope and a prayer and back home, your family's poor, you need to know that if you're materially poor, or if you're spiritually poor, that the good news is that even if the government doesn't care, God cares. You may be forgotten by the powerful of this world, but the good news is that the all-powerful God of eternity remembers you. And in the church, he is forming a community that cares to address not only spiritual poverty, but material, material poverty right now. This is the difference that Jesus makes. We no longer deal with people based upon what we can get from them. We deal with people based upon what we have already received from Christ in the gospel. And we long to give to them of our very selves. The gospel tells us that Jesus liberates the captives. The Lord has created a free people so that we will join the work to free people. The greatest and most terrifying captivity of all is captivity to the grave, exiled from the presence of God. But when we were held under the foreign powers of darkness, when we were forced to labor under the harsh rule of a foreign king, the ruler of this world, when all of our gifts and our talents and intelligence were controlled by that foreign ruler called sin, when we were far from home and homesick, when we were miserable, the Son of God demonstrated his liberating power for us. At the cross, Jesus liberates the captives by becoming a captive. Jesus becomes a temporary captive of the grave so that in his resurrection, he can prove to us that he himself is the way out of this captivity and into eternal freedom. And Jesus continues this ministry today, both personally and socially, through the church. People who have been set free from the curse are to become a freedom-fighting people far as the curse is found far as the curse is found. The gospel tells us that Jesus set at liberty those who are oppressed, broken to pieces. And in Jesus Christ, the downtrodden, the weak, those who have been broken to pieces have an advocate. Those held in the strong grip of oppression of evil circumstances have a defender. And every one of us who struggle with the deeper internal spiritual oppression of sin, selfishness, pride, guilt, shame, and fear have a liberator in Jesus. 
How can Jesus liberate those who have been broken to pieces, though? He himself was broken to pieces because of our sin and misery. But when we look to Jesus and see how he was restored in the resurrection by the power of God, we're looking into our future if we're trusting in Jesus Christ. And this activates us to do likewise, to long to see people made whole by the resurrection power at work in us and through us. The gospel proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. In Jesus Christ, we can declare the year of Jubilee, the age of salvation. We can announce to the whole land that slaves are free by faith in the gospel, but we now have the spiritual power and the freedom and the calling to declare to the world's captives, we're coming for you, we're working for you, we're fighting for you to enter into both physical and spiritual freedom through the Spirit's power. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus was a word and deed savior, so we must be a word and deed people. Jesus went throughout the land dealing with people's physical afflictions as a demonstration that the kingdom of God had come upon them. He preached, he gave them grace, but he also addressed them in their material and physical needs. Do you see? It's both and, not either or. This is the life of justice. The life and ministry of Jesus should turn us into the greatest advocates and activists for the good, the true, and the beautiful, for the just in this world. That's shalom. That's real peace. It's not just a, a moment of quiet when your roommate isn't there. Peace is expansive, extraordinary beauty and wholeness and flourishing, the highest of joys, the richest of satisfaction, the freest of freedoms. That's, that's peace in God's kingdom. I'm going to close with this. There is a fantastic biography on Frederick Douglass by a historian named David Blight, who's a historian out of Yale. And in this biography, um, one of the things that uh, David Blight does is he, he grounds the, the, the activism of, of Frederick Douglass's life in his, in his faith, his Christian faith. And in one of Douglas's speeches, he says to the audience, trying to get them to fight against the scourge of slavery, he says to them, he says, the reality is that everybody is an abolitionist. Every single human being on the face of the planet is an abolitionist. They all fight for and work for their own experience of freedom. He says, the question is not, will you be an abolitionist? The question is, will you be an abolitionist for your neighbors? Will you be an abolitionist for more than just yourself? That's the question that is upon us tonight from this text in the gospel. Will it be the case that the sweetness of what you have received in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that freedom, that liberation, that joy, will it become 
your heart's desire to see that same kind of freedom in a holistic way become the possession of your neighbor. If you make that choice, you will find yourself walking in the footsteps of Jesus. You will find yourself more formed into his image. You will find yourself being a disciple of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these friends, for their kind attention to me, but more importantly, thank you for their desire to sit under your word. And I pray, Lord, that your word, as it has gone out, would accomplish what you sent it for. I pray that it would nag us until we turn our hearts to Christ. I pray that your word would encourage and inspire us because you love sinners. You love sinners. You don't resent us. You love us. You delight in us. And it's that love and delight that should ground the kind of life that leads to the flourishing and well-being of our neighbors. Help us, Lord, to be a just people. Help us to be courageous and fearless because we know that this work has its enemies. But Lord, I pray that we would be characterized by the spirituality of Jesus and that you would help us to remain faithful to the faith once given over to the saints. Thank you for your goodness to us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, now we are going to start the Q&A. Um, Katie's back on and, uh, and Russ and Stuart are, uh, will be coming back on. Russ, are you there? There you go. Good. Stuart's coming back on. Um, well, y'all, we'll do, we're going to do five questions, um, and we'll, we'll cut it there. So y'all go ahead and get your questions in if you have them. Um, and I will start off with the, um, the first one. Uh, Russ, it starts with a compliment to you. Mr. Whitfield, God spoke so clearly to you tonight. Thank you for blessing us with that. Thank you. The question is, how can we as college students best serve the oppressed share the freedom Jesus gives us. Maybe, mm-hmm. yeah. um, how can we as college students best serve the oppressed and share the freedom that Jesus gives us? This, and then in parentheses, it says, this may be a question to ask the Lord in prayer, but I was hoping to see your thoughts. No, that's a good question. Okay, so I, I would say, think of this as like a marathon and not like a sprint. So um, one of the things that I tried to do is uh, encourage people, first of all, to start on the journey of of seeing. Like the the first thing is seeing, like to be present to uh, your life. You know how sometimes you can run through life and you're so busy and you got so many things going on. Like there have been times where I've, I've driven home from work and I don't remember how I got to in front of my house because my mind is in so many different places. It's, it's being present. It's, it's listening to the stories of people who are on the margins. There's a journey of learning um, that I think is really important, a journey of listening. It's like that simple empathy and where that leads you and trying to imagine what it would be like to be in someone else's shoes. I think that's why it's so important when Jesus talks about like doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. I would say it, it takes some Christian imagination, like, if you could put yourself in their shoes, what would you want someone to do for you? What would you want them 
to be thinking about? How would you have them use their resources or leverage the relationships they have? Um, I think that's a really helpful thought. And then whatever your major is um, and whatever job path you're thinking about or whatever location you think you're going to wind up in, I would say start dreaming about what are the unique ways that you could um, be a blessing to people who are in need. Um, in, and think of it in a way that you're not doing them a favor, but you're giving them what is due in the eyes of God. And that really keeps you from being like, I'm a pretty decent person. I'm a pretty awesome, you know, like it keeps you from centering yourself and it's hard, it's hard not to center yourself in these kinds of things. So yeah, look at your gifts, look at your opportunities, commune with the Lord in prayer, ask your friends to speak into ways that they see you uh, equipped to do some cool stuff. And then I would say, start trying to do something. And like you said, look to the Lord for his guidance and how that might take more pointed shape. Yeah, thank you, Russ. Stuart, anything to add? I mean, what he said is awesome, but I think Jamar Tisby has this great quote where he says, racial reconciliation isn't something to achieve, it's something to receive. And I, I love that principle of like thinking about the kingdom of God is not something to achieve, it's something to receive. Like it's a reality to live into that Jesus has already achieved. And so we're taking ourselves into where our hands become Christ's hands, our heart becomes Christ's heart, our eyes become Christ's eyes. And so I think, what does it mean for us to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, liberty, those who are oppressed? This is like what it means to see like Jesus sees. And so I think it's just really helpful, like Russ said, of just like, what is the typical way that we look at the oppressed and how do we, oh man, they're, they, they're lazy you know they deserve this or they didn't work as hard as i did or we deny all the systemic realities of how we're not born into equal situations and so i think it's very important that we unlearn seeing in the typical ways that we see and fit jesus into that and try to do jesus-like behavior but we, we turn that off and instead we start with seeing how does jesus see and then follow the spirit and so i think I just think that's really helpful. Think about it as something to receive that Jesus has already accomplished. Like this is something that Jesus has already purchased. This is already true for the oppressed, whether we believe it or not. Like this is going to be true for the oppressed. And yet God both and uses our efforts and he uses our work and he uses us as the church. And, and so I don't know if you want to go off of that Russ, but that just made me think of those things. I think it's also important too. like, um, uh, this is really important. Um, uh, Y'all ready? Don't let care for the oppressed and the marginal and the vulnerable become a politicized thing. Loving people on the margins is not a liberal or progressive thing. It's not a conservative thing. Mm -hmm. It's a Jesus thing. Mm -hmm. And that's important. Don't, don't politicize what you're supposed to gospelize. Yeah. Thank you. That's key. Yeah. Wow, that was really good. Yes. Uh, thank you. That was good. So important. Um, on that note, we have another question. So when it comes to receiving the gospel and gospelizing the things around us, how do we interact with cancel culture, forgiveness, and holding people accountable for things that they've said in a Christian light? Mm. Yes, that makes total sense. That's so good. Um, yeah. So listen, 
the cancel culture thing, uh, what, what's, what's conspicuously missing from the cancel culture thing is grace. But we all know that we don't believe in a grace that is cavalier about sin and cavalier about error and doesn't care about truth and just is like wish, wishy-washy kind of like fire insurance, you know, ticket to heaven one day is where you float on clouds like with chubby angels and strum harps. Like our view of grace, grace, we have to have a more robust view of grace and grace purifies. If you look at like Titus chapter two, verses 11 through 15, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and unrighteousness, right? It, it, it changes us. The grace of God changes us. There's enough grace in Jesus to cover our sin. There's enough grace in Jesus to admit our sin. And there's enough grace in Jesus to grow us up out of our sin into newness of life. And so I think we must resist joining the pile like on let's just talk social media let's just be really specific say someone says something dumb right on social media and everyone starts piling in and piling in and piling in first we refuse to be a part of that pile on um we it may cost us our reputation to speak up for somebody or maybe we just make sure we reach out to that person personally and be be the comfort of jesus to them but also be aware there's a time and a place for delivering comfort and there's a time and a place for delivering truth and it takes wisdom and discernment to know how to give the right truth at the right time because if you give the right truth at the wrong time it ends up being the wrong kind of practice you end up wounding people you know think of someone who suffers a catastrophic loss right and you come up to them and say well brother God's sovereign, ain't he? God's sovereign. It's like, you, you, no, you messed up. Yes. yes, God is sovereign. Now's not the time to lay that particular teaching on this person. Right. Maybe now's the teaching that you say, Jesus is your great high priest, and he weeps with you. He mourns mm -hmm. with you. He cares for you, and he's with you. I love you. There'll be a time down the road, maybe, but... It's the timing thing too. So it's your particular view of grace. And this is where we have to be salt and light. And we have to lean against the, the, the ugliest parts of our culture at this moment and be, you know, grace and truth people. I don't know if that helps, but. Definitely. Thank you. Very good. Thank you so much. Stuart, do you have anything to add? Uh, um, love the humility. Uh, here's the next question. Do you have any advice to avoid a savior complex when walking with our brothers and sisters who have had to suffer more oppression than us personally? I want to imitate Jesus and I am a sinner, but I can only sympathize with my brothers and sisters, not fully understand the, the oppression they've experienced. I love that question as a really great question. Thank you for asking it. I would say an easy one is to not broadcast your righteousness on social media um you know the typical picture where people will go on a mission trip somewhere and they'll take their picture with surrounded by a bunch of little brown kids and it's like yay and all of us know that short-term missions is like 
you know, it's limited in the scope of what it is we provide. It, it often does more for us than it does for the people there because they have to do all this work to prepare for us. And, you know, there's this whole rigmarole and like one week you're coming over there, right? So I would say resist the, the, the desire to let your right hand know what your left hand is doing on social media. I would say keep it humble. I, I would say also like, it's again, it's that practice of putting yourself in the shoes of the other person um, and trying to imagine how, um, how much uh, humiliating it is if someone kind of like holds that over you or they like kind of rub it in, rub it in your face. Um, and then I would say, be quick to repent, quick to repent. As soon as you notice the seeds of it, turn your heart back to Jesus and off of your own self aggrandizement and remember the humility of Christ. This is a Philippians two kind of thing. Um, so, uh, also like let your friends speak into it as well like maybe there's a small group of people that you you know your inner circle that knows kind of what you're doing but like if they notice you know receive whatever words they offer you if it seems like you're getting getting a little bit swole <laughs> yeah i think some of the greatest moments in life are vulnerable moments right where you feel just like uh, like what, what's, what's going on. And there are moments where we are brought out of our comfort zones or we're doing something that's different and we're not sure what's going on. Like I can remember when I came to Alabama five or six years ago, and I remember coming here and thinking, man, I want to be a part of something at RUF Alabama where we can be a part of something on campus where we can love and serve and listen to and empower people of different races and ethnicities and, and, every, and you come in with this, this vision, right? And a lot of it is of the kingdom and a lot of it is of your own ego and of your own self. And you put the, you put the weight of the church on yourself, right? Like no one individual can carry the weight of the whole entire church. And so I think it's really important just to remind yourself, like this is a church calling, like this is a church effort. And uh, it's hard and confusing when, if our aren't leading us, right? Like if you feel like you're going against the current and some of these issues are against, or you're, 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 you're taking the church to some places where you feel uncomfortable, it can be, it can be really, uh, it can be really challenging and really hard. So I don't know. I definitely, I, I feel that, uh, that tension, but I would just say, try to go on someone else's turf and, and be there with them and, and, and learn what it means uh, to be vulnerable and to feel other uh, and to feel different and, um, and yeah, some of the best things that have ever happened here or in my life have been some of those terrifying things. And, um, and so I, I know that that's how Russ, I mean, I know how Russ, you can feel ministry a lot of just like situations that just feel, oh my gosh, like how could the gospel advance situation and when you have a vision for something versus the actual experience of it. So I tie that into the savior complex too, of just like the patience and everything. Yes. Yes. Um, I would say like, I, okay, this is all good. This is all good. Another easy accessible thing. I would say you have to look until you feel, you have to feel until you break, you have to break until you act and you have to act until you repair and restore what has been taken. So it's, it's this process. Like if you rush it, 
then it, it won't be a sustainable work. Sometimes the most important thing you can do is just spend time and lament. It's one of the things that it's so not American. It's like, we're like, man, let's get to the victory. Like, let's get to the, you know, let's get to the, the celebration. It, it, we have not yet learned how to fully lament. But there are certain things that will not click until you have looked long enough to lament and to have a broken heart about it. And then I feel like a lot of the answer to this question of avoiding a savior complex will come when you, when you recognize the brokenness, because a lot of times what we recognize is that we've actually played some part in a larger picture that has put them there. And so like, like I've had those experiences before um, where I've recognized that it's, I'm part of the problem. And I like in some small way. And so that like, that kind of saps every bit of savior. I'm just, I'm just fixing what I jacked up anyway. There ain't no savior in this. I'm fixing what I jacked up. So. Yeah. Yeah. That humility. Humbling. Uh, some, yeah. Someone asked a question on there. I posted a link on my church's website. If anyone's looking for resources, I compiled a, a resources for cross-cultural understanding. And it's got articles, reports, it's got church history and theology. It's got all different kinds of books from historical to sociological. It's got stuff for children and families. It's got websites and blogs. It's got documentaries, films, organizations to, um, to, to, that will help you to learn more. So just in case, I, I answered it in response to Someone asked a question, I said type answer, and I did it, and I don't know how to do all this stuff. So maybe it worked. Did it work? How do I type something for everyone? Um, we will, yeah, there you go. I'll, I'll make sure it gets out. Um, yeah, thank you, Russ. We'll make yeah. sure. Hey, okay, will you give us our last question? Yes, I will. So it actually ties it all back in. But um, how should we think about balancing our desires for helping our local neighbors as well as our global neighbors when both mm. things seem so, so like savior complex being into our perspective for living on our campus? Yes. Balancing desires for helping our local neighbors as well as global neighbors when both can seem so demanding. That question? Yes. Okay. 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 All right, so listen, at some level, there was this old school, old school Christian who said, do all the good you can in all the ways you can uh, uh, with all of the resources you can for however long you can. It was basically, the word is rhythms and boundaries, okay? So like we, one of the ways that you sustain this work and you don't just, you're not like the firework on 4th of July that looks amazing for a very short time and then just poof, is gone is you have to mind your own limitations your your rhythms and your boundaries think of it less as something you have to do and more as someone you have to become because if you focus on the becoming question the doing questions follow more easily yeah. if you focus more on doing then you'll always it's sort of like give a man a fish versus teach a man a fish Y'all know that old country saying, right? Give a man a fish, he eats for a day. Teach a man a fish, he eats for a lifetime. 
I tried to teach Stu how to fish, but he kept fishing with a Fisher Price pole and wasn't catching no. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. Story. Ah, if I show look, if I show you pictures from back in the day, he looked like Harry Potter. He was like Harry Potter. <laughs> on every the question you have to ask every morning when you wake up is who must I become today there are certain things you won't get done that you would normally get done on your to-do list uh, but you could get a bunch of stuff ticked off on your to-do list and become a scoundrel but if you ask the question every day who must I become I must become more present today I must become more aware I, I need the mind of Christ to see the people who are normally invisible to me. I need the mind of Christ to think about the people who usually never cross my mind. Mm -hmm. I need the mind of Christ to think about my life in such a way that I'm not fitting in, you know, generosity if it suits me, but rather I prioritize generosity to the poor and to global efforts. Uh, and I fit in some of my luxuries if there's money left over afterward. I need the mind of Christ to look at my existing financial situation and to be able to radically start trimming stuff out of my budget because I realize I'm, it's too me focused. And then you have to also, like one of the things that's important is that God has raised up organizations and in churches and other places. And, and sometimes the most important way you participate is by supporting them rather than doing something that like, you know, no, I need to do this. Like if there's someone who's do, like in, international justice mission, for example, is, is doing amazing work um, of like, like tearing down unjust systems around the world of sex trafficking and, and child labor and all these kinds of things that are, that are criminal uh, activity toward children. And I know that they're doing the work in a way that I can't. They're sending real attorneys over to deal with justice systems. I can't do that, but I can support them and I can stay tuned in with their work. And don't forget, one of the phrases of the church throughout history was, ora et labora, prayer is the work. There are a no amount of gifts and no amount of talent and no amount of intentionality will make up for a lack of prayer. So I would say like one of the things that's really important is, is really targeting your prayer life toward the things that really matter, not just for yourself and your own formation and your availability for these things, but for the, for the people who are, who are doing the work for the people who are in need of the work and Jesus told us to pray like the fields are ripe for harvest. And we often think about that in terms of evangelism, because I think, you know, that's a primary emphasis of that text. But I think that principle applies for all different kinds of work. Like the fields are ripe for Christians to rise up and care about justice. Pray for the harvest. We need some attorneys who are going to go in and wreck shop and get some things right and some local justice departments. And, and we need some people who are going to become judges at some point. And we need some people who are going to be 
you know, just business entrepreneurs someday. And they're going to think creatively about how they do their business and how they build their company. Like we need to pray, right? Like I'm, I'm asking the Lord for the third great awakening. <laughs> and that third great awakening is the awakening of comfort, comfortable Christians who are stuck in the malaise of this, this version of Christianity. That's just like, it's hype. I'm, I'm praying that the third great awakening is that existing Christians wake up to the things that we need to repair and restore that we have played a part in breaking and tearing down that have impaired our witness. I've seen so many things recently in the circles that I run in of people like, like sometimes, man, Christians really undermine a lot of the work that I'm trying to do here. And I spend a lot of time trying to, you know, uh, fend off the attacks from wild things that Christians say and do. And then a lot of times it's my own bad decisions that creates havoc for the ministry, right? So we've all played a part in creating a lot of these problems. So um, anyway, rhythms and boundaries and prayer and, um, and asking the primary question, Every morning when you wake up, it may, this may be worth it for the 79 remaining participants. I want to encourage you to try this for a day, get a note card and write on that note card, who must I become today and put it on your bedstand, like on your, your nightstand beside your bed and recognize every morning how often you basically wake up and, and think through the question, what do I have to do today? And then life feels like a grind because you're only thinking of all the tasks that you got to do in that day. And that, that feels overwhelming. And it's just like, ah, man, I got this. And then I got to do this. And then, oh man, this is going to be a beating instead of thinking, who must I become today? Because Jesus loves me. Who must I become today? Because my future is new heavens and new earth. Who must I become today? Because the spirit of God has been poured out my life. And he's the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Who must I become today? That is going to take you a long way in, and and um, getting clarity on the, the the way you address the 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 questions. So I would say get to the root, and the fruit will will become you know it will it'll be there. That was a wow. long answer. Sorry. Amen. Thank you, Rose. That was great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything to add to that? No, I know. I mean, I got, I got, I loved hearing Russell saying I got, I got booted before, so I'm, I'm kind of lost. So let's just leave it. Let's leave it there. <laughs> sure. Will you give us a benediction? I'd love to. All right. So this is from God himself from numbers chapter six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you for coming. And thank you, Russ. Amen. Really appreciate it, Katie and Cole. Bye, y'all. Much love. Bye. See ya.